This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Hello, everyone. My name is Erin Trelor, and I am the host of Raw Beauty Talks. We're taking you behind the highlight reel of the world's biggest influencers and wellness gurus to get a raw glimpse of what beauty, health, and wellness look like in today's world so that you can feel your absolute best in your body and in your life. Hello, Raw Beauties. Today's guest is one of the only people who I follow on TikTok. I think I follow four people on TikTok and our guest today is one of those individuals. She is an absolute powerhouse when it comes to body positivity, mental health advocacy. She is a former division one volleyball player, semi-pro, a TEDx talk speaker. Your TEDx talk was in incredible. She is queen of the short form video on social media (laughs) and is now touring North America, talking to all kinds of people about mental health and about body image and about so many of the things that a lot of women and men are struggling with today. So Victoria Garrix is here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. I need to play that every morning when I wake up. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly am so, so impressed with the incredible work that you are doing. Can you tell me a little bit about what sort of inspired you and motivated you to start down this path? It was extremely natural kind of falling into what I do now. And honestly, this is one of my favorite parts about it, about everything that I've kind of built is it was super organic and rooted in just like a genuine want to be a part of this conversation. If you would have shown me a picture of my Instagram feed when I was now and showed it to my 16 year old self, I would have been mortified. Like I don't have this picture, my stomach rolls. I can't believe I'm talking about feeling like I'm not good enough. I can't believe I'm admitting I don't have friends. Like I would have freaked out. So the fact that I do this now is just wild compared to, you know, who I used to be. But the gist of it is I had my first experiences with depression and anxiety and disordered eating in college. And when that trifecta hit me, I really struggled. I really felt like I was suffering. I really finally experienced pain. Um, You know, I grew up in a very privileged, coddled bubble of a community. And so to venture outside of that and be on my own and start to have all these problems arise, I just was shocked. I felt alone. I felt lost. I felt afraid. And once I realized that what I was going through was actually extremely common and that a lot of people did experience this, and then even thinking about, wow, this was what this person was feeling in high school. This was why this person didn't come. And I could never even understand why you wouldn't enjoy your life, why you wouldn't like the way you look. And so once I realized how apparent mental health issues are, how susceptible everyone is to them. I just felt really inclined to share my story. And and the biggest story I wanted to share was that of student athlete mental health. And just this realization that you can be a student athlete at your dream school and your dream team and really be struggling. And so the first thing I ever did speaking out was that TED talk. And I had no plans or thoughts of that bringing me anywhere I am now, which is kind of crazy to think about. I feel like people are like, you don't give a TED talk and not think about how it's going to affect your life. But I really wasn't. (laughs) I was a sophomore in college. I think I was 19. And I was just like, I want to share this. 
And then, you know, everything started happening from there. So in a nutshell, that's kind of how this all began. Your TED Talk is absolutely incredible. You start off by walking people through what a day in the life of a student athlete is. And I was never a student athlete. I mean, I played sports in high school, but never at the level that you did. And even though I couldn't relate necessarily to the sports piece, I was like, that is what my day felt like, regardless being a student and working a job and navigating all the things that people are navigating in their late teens and their early 20s. Who are my friends? All the pressure to perform in school and at work and as a woman and all of these areas. And it can become debilitating. It can become anxiety provoking or can cause depression. So for you, you're this high performing athlete in school, away from home, navigating all of these things. What did the anxiety and depression feel like for you? What did that look like in your life? When the anxiety started, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced because I was extremely confident and always the person to put myself out there, to believe in myself, to raise my hand first. So when all of those things started to slowly fade away and I was afraid to be the person to volunteer, afraid to be on the court, um, I feared making a mistake. It was this really uncomfortable kind of what is happening to me. I had no idea performance anxiety was a thing. I thought people had social anxiety is what I'd like heard of. I didn't know you could be anxious about performing or doing something you're good at. So I couldn't even start to put a label to, oh, this might be something. I just looked at it as what's wrong with me? Why am I not confident? Why am I so afraid? Why am I shaking before games? Why am I on the verge of tears every time I feel like I'm under pressure? And I even have found kind of cleaning out my stuff and moving out of uh, college and out to where I am now looking through journals. And I found this entry and it said something like, I don't know what's going on, but I just don't like playing. Like I'm afraid to play. And it was like me reading this diary entry I wrote describing performance anxiety, but having no idea what it was. So that's how the anxiety started. And because I didn't know it was something that was common, I thought it was this flaw in me and that no one should know about this. So I didn't say much and I kept this to myself and I just tried to figure it out and get it done as athletes do. And then because I bottled that down for such a long time. My sophomore year is when I experienced my first major depressive episode and just felt completely numb, completely drained. Mm. It was like that whole year of struggling with anxiety and issues with my body and food had now led me to a sophomore year where I just felt like I had nothing left in my tank. And, you know, I'd been dealing with these mental health issues that I hadn't been working on, I didn't have tools for, and it brought me to this really, really low place. It's so scary when you're there and when you don't understand what's happening to you. And as you said, you feel like you're just flawed. Why can't I figure this out? Like, why can't I just get in the game? Why can't I dig deeper? Why is everyone else seem to be okay with all of this, but I'm not doing okay. I think it's so important that people like you are speaking out about your experience because we know now that one in four individuals are struggling with some sort of mental health concern and there's still such a stigma around it. I love as well in your TED talk, which we'll link to in the show notes. And this is the last thing I'll mention. You just got to go listen to her TED talk. I love when you ask the audience, raise your hand if you've ever sprained your ankle, if you've ever like had an injury of some sort and everyone in the audience raised their hands. We've all had a physical injury 
And when that happens to someone, you feel, you feel bad for them. You suggest that they, you know, ice their foot and you provide sympathy and you take rest days, but we're not there with mental health yet. There's still such a stigma around it. So then you ask the audience, put up your hand if you've ever felt anxiety or depression. Now, how many people in the audience put up their hand? I was just definitely not the same. And, and it was more about the way people raised their hands. Like the first one is, oh, me, like I sprained my ankle. Everyone loves talking about the cast they wore and the booth. Totally. And then you ask about mental health and you see just some like slow looking around. Are you raising your hand? Okay, I'll raise my hand. Um, and that is the stigma. Yeah. And it really is there. And I think the, the issue with the stigma is that it prevents people from getting the help and support that they need. So how did you come to terms with the fact that you had anxiety and depression? What, like, what was that process like? I definitely realized something was wrong with me. I just was so, I mean, I, I use the word miserable as like how it, it felt um, in my everyday life. And even like my parents would come visit me and my mom has like so many stories of coming to visit me and like all I did was sleep or all I did was cry or I just looked pale and sickly and like something was wrong. And in terms of getting help, what happened was I just got to a point where it was so apparent that something was wrong that I felt like I needed to ask someone, like if they felt the same as me. And so I confided in a teammate who I really trusted and she told me she sees a psychologist at the health center and then told me that we could see them for free and she could give me the email of you know who to reach out to and i think it was really big for me to know that this girl was seeing a counselor too i think the chances of me asking someone who i was comfortable with i trusted and i looked up to said oh yeah you can get help and i am actually getting the help now made me feel even more okay and seeking it however going to therapy for the first time was difficult you sit in that waiting room, you look around at the people there, you're worried if people are going to see you on campus walking in, you're wondering if people are wondering what your problem is, and I'm a super type A, go-getter, make-it-happen type person. So to be in a situation where I'm about to ask someone, how should I do this? Help me. I don't know the answer. I can't figure it out. It felt like a loss. And that was really hard for me at first. But the big switch came when I realized that seeking help for my mental health was the exact same thing and was so similar to the way we've been encouraged to seek help our whole lives with tutoring, with going to get more books to study and be better at academically, with training, going to more practices, getting a lesson to be better physically. Why am I not allowed to see someone who has spent years studying the mind and emotion regulation who can help me manage my emotions and my life? Why is that one the one where it's not okay to seek help? And when I kind of realized that is when this fire went off in me of, I don't want anyone else to feel this way. Mm, I absolutely love that and completely agree. And really, when I think about the individuals in my life who I look up to the most or the people who have got, quote unquote, the furthest or reached their goals, like every single one of them at some point has used therapy or has hired a coach or is investing in meditation classes and mindset training. You know, I work with several people right now who are doing what's called mindset sculpting. And I'm so happy to hear that it's becoming less taboo 
to seek therapy, but we still have a long way to go. We still have a long way to go. I truly think it's one of the greatest gifts. Like I think everyone needs at least a session or just to explore the inner side of themselves or maybe what trauma from childhood has affected you. And I think when we hear the word trauma too, people kind of associate once again, the stigma of, oh, trauma. Like, well, you must have witnessed someone die in front of you. Like it needs to be this extreme thing, but really there's little trauma and there's big trauma, but it's all trauma. And you know, the little trauma could be something like every single time you came down wearing shorts, your mom made a joking negative comment. Like that can be traumatic and it can affect the way you experience the rest of your life and the way you see yourself. So I think everyone at least has to, or could benefit from exploring that side of themselves. But then we get to the other issue, the big issue, which is the lack of the ability to do that. We're very lucky and fortunate to go to therapy and have those resources. So it's also just so sad to think about the people who can't access therapy or the people who want to have broke through the stigma, built up the courage, and then they're turned away at the door. I know it is, as you said, a massive piece of the puzzle. And my hope would be that eventually there's government support for this type of thing. I love hearing that, you know, schools are providing that kind of support. I'm lucky I live in Canada. So we have coverage for some of that, not enough, but some of it. And I hope that with time we start to understand and countries understand even from an economical standpoint, how much this is impacting businesses because people are having to take mental health breaks and it's falling under sick leave, of course. But, you know, there's just, we're learning more and more and more how much our mental game affects every aspect of our life, our community, our families, and our global world. And in 2020, more than ever, we're seeing, you know, how this is impacting us. So I'm curious to know for you with the therapy, was that enough? Was that the key? What other practices have you really held on to to support you in your mental health journey? I feel like therapy opened up the portal for me that was inner exploration, curiosity about my feelings, why I'm thinking the way I'm thinking. It showed me how to look inside myself and evaluate things that I never had before. But I really do believe a person has to want to get better. They have to want to change. And sitting in that office for one hour every seven days wasn't going to be enough. I had to implement tools I was learning in practice. I had to have conversations with my family and my best friends constantly about how I was feeling and what they were feeling. And I read a lot of books. I listened to a lot of podcasts. I started following different people who were preaching and teaching different things. So it was definitely the starting point, but I want to add that it has to be also a want from the person of, okay, how can I get better? How can I figure this out? And that's the part where I felt like that true version of me came back, like that make it happen, figure it out part of me was like, okay, how can I figure out why I'm struggling? That was seeking the help and applying the, the skill sets I was learning and advocating. 
I love it. So you mentioned reading books, listening to podcasts, having conversations about how you were feeling as being some of the tools that you were using. Any favorite books or podcasts that you would recommend to our audience? Yeah. So there's a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. It's yeah. absolutely fabulous. I recommend everyone read that, athlete or not. It's just yeah. for all humans trying to approach challenge and failure better. The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck is also yes. a fabulous book for anxiety. People like me who are obsessed with achieving. And then when it came to my relationship with food and my body, there's a book called Breaking Free from Emotional Eating by Janine Roth. And yeah. that book absolutely changed my life. So big fan of that one as well. Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L com slash talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. Friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you a over. Put up your hand if you tend to be really all or nothing when it comes to health and wellness. Like you are eating all the most nourishing foods and all the ones that everyone's told you are the most healthy. You're working out, you're meditating, you're so committed, and then boom, something happens. You go to a birthday party, you have a weekend away, some sort of hard conversation has to happen at work, and all of a sudden you've been thrown completely off track. I feel yeah, I have been there so many times, and I know that inevitably this cycle that we can get into leads to major feelings of disappointment and lowered self-esteem. When we're not feeling good in our body, that really impacts all areas of our life. I created the Raw Beauty Reset, case you didn't hear already our 12-week program, The Shift, got a rename. It's now called 
the Raw Beauty Reset. And this 12-week program was designed to help you really improve and find a healthier relationship with food and your body. We go through four main pillars, nourishment, you'll learn how to eat intuitively and in a way that feels balanced and incredibly nourishing for your body. Movement, learn how to create a sustainable workout plan that actually feels enjoyable to do. Mindset, you'll learn how to be more mindful, how to feel more calm and confident in who you are and then self-love, which is the constant act of knowing yourself and honoring who you are. To celebrate this refresh of our name, I'm now offering the Raw Reset for only three payments of $99. We have never done this before. So if you're finishing this summer off feeling like, again, you missed out on things because you just didn't feel comfortable in your body or that you were eating all the things during the summer and you're just not feeling your best, this program is for you. 12 weeks. I want you to click the link in our profile to make sure that you get this offer while it lasts. We have the most incredible group of women going through the program right now. And I know I would love to have the opportunity to be your personal health coach for the next three months so that you wrap up 2020 feeling your absolute best from the inside out. Click the link in our profile right now to learn all about the Raw Beauty Reset. And of course, you can always send me a DM over on Instagram at Raw Beauty Talks if you have any questions at all. You've struggled with anxiety and depression. And so often that, especially as women, can tie into our relationship with our body and our relationship with food because those are two things that can feel really easy to control in a moment when everything else is starting to feel out of control. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with those two things, food and your body? Definitely. I'd always struggled with wanting to obtain the perfect image and that beauty standard. So it had always been something on my radar. However, I was able to keep it somewhat under wraps just because like I'd mentioned everything else in my life was pretty fine so I had nothing exacerbating or in amplifying those issues I had that were at the time seemed small but looking back were not once I got to USC and that performance anxiety I mentioned started to develop my new coping mechanism for stress became eating and became food and as I started my body started to change I, of course, tried to diet, tried to restrict, and that led me into this binge eating cycle, which I'd never experienced before. I I had done the typical diet and then break your diet and then diet again, but what this was was extreme restriction to extreme consumption of food and just repeating that all the time. And so that is when I really started to develop those more severe issues with food. And in terms of image, you know, those obviously related to each other. My eating issues had a lot to do with disliking my appearance, feeling guilty about weight gain, and also feeling so anxious and afraid of volleyball. And then food was that one thing, like you said, I could control and I could seek comfort in. So that is when those issues really started to develop. And then sophomore year, So of course, all that stuff, the the anxiety, the eating is what led to the depression. And then 
all of that semester when I mentioned I end up seeking help, I end up delivering the TED Talk, was the same semester my mom actually purchased that book for me, Breaking Free Mm -hmm. from Emotional Eating by Janine Roth. And it was hugely instrumental in helping me recover from my binge eating and transition into a form of eating which I live, stand, and will die by, which is called intuitive eating and essentially listening to your body. And, you know, if diet culture didn't exist, we would literally just call it eating. But because diet culture exists, we have to call it intuitive eating. It's absolutely brilliant and was what helped me overcome my eating disorders as well. It's now what I teach as a coach to women through our program, The Raw Beauty Reset. I mean, this is, as you said, it's just eating. It's, it's really more about going back to what we innately know to be true in regards to our hunger and our fullness levels, eating when we're hungry, stopping when we're full, but also recognizing that it's not always going to be that black and white. Sometimes you eat when, you know, there's a social setting or the food's really good or... One of my favorite things my therapist ever said to me was, I think I went in and I was like, oh my God, like, this is so weird. Last night I ate popcorn, but I wasn't even hungry. I just ate it because I was watching, we were watching a movie. <laughs> this is when I had been intuitive eating for a while. So I was like all upset that I'd emotionally eaten. And she was like, you're a human being. You're going to emotionally eat sometimes. I don't always have to be hungry for it. Like yes. it is yeah. the huge part. And I do that all the time. I'm like, okay, I'm not really hungry, but I love the idea of eating this with my friends right now. So I'm going to do it. And, you know, just, I think that awareness plays a big role. Do you feel like your relationship with food now is great? Do you feel like there's, you know, it's an evolving relationship? Where are you at today? I feel really confident that my relationship with food is great. It's one of the things that keeps my life intact. Food has become so, and my relationship with food has become so low on the spectrum. Like it's not the priority. It's not something I worry about. It's not something I forgot about. But at the same time, I think I almost, not the same as when I had issues with food, but I'm still thinking about food a lot and those choices. Like this idea that you'll just never, ever think about food and what you're eating is almost going to set you up for a failure because that's kind of impossible. I'll go days where I'm like, oh my God, it's two, I got to eat lunch. So like I do have those days where because of my intuitive eating, I'm not always thinking about food, but when it comes to making choices, I really care about those. You know, I'm like, I want to have something that makes me feel good. I want to make a good choice here that is everything I want in this lunch or in this dinner. So I'm really happy with the relationship I have with food and knowing where I was and where I am now is why I'm so passionate about helping others. I think what's interesting about what you just said is that the motivating factor as to why you're making the choices about food, it sounds like it's coming from a really healthy place. Like you want to nourish yourself. There's pleasure. Sometimes you're like, I want to enjoy this with a friend versus it being like, you shouldn't have that. You can't have that. Don't eat that right now. Or make sure that you like choose the healthiest, most clean quote unquote option. It's coming from a completely different space. And I think that little shift right there makes all the difference. Exactly. And it's something that I need to do to maintain this healthy relationship with food. For me to have these conversations, to some people, it might look like you still care a lot about what you're eating and you're always thinking about what you're eating. But to me, 
it's the process of my healthy relationship with food that I really, really enjoy. I love opening the fridge and taking 50 seconds to stand there and look at all the food and think about what I want. Is it cold? Is it warm? Is it crunchy? How do I want to feel after I eat this food? All of that stuff is a part of my routine and it makes me feel good. And I think for that to be taken away from me would make it difficult for me to have my relationship with food. So I think it's also important to not judge our relationship with food and, the, and how much you're thinking about it, how not you're, how much you're not thinking about it, what you're eating, what you're not eating. Like I'm a big fan of just no judgment. Like if you eat, I had a friend tell me the other day, oh, I ate a whole bag of pretzels, like a huge bag. And I was wondering if I was binging and I was like, well, were you hungry for the whole bag? And when you were done, did you feel full? Like, let's forget the fact that it's a big portion and you're not supposed to eat the whole bag. Like, did you feel good after were you hungry for all those pretzels? Because yeah. if so, cool, let's just check the box and move on. But sometimes we look at the calories or the portion or the time of day, and then we attach this judgment about we should or we shouldn't be eating. Totally. I think so much of it at the end of the day is like, how do you feel after enjoying it? How do you feel in general? Like if in general you are feeling good in your life and you eat a full bag of pretzels and then you somewhat move on, like, and maybe check in with your friend, like, was that, was this binging? Was that binging? But generally you're good. Like you're good. We all know though, what it feels like when things start to feel out of control, when things start to feel like they're spiraling, when you know that you're stuck in some sort of rut and it's, you're having a hard time getting out of that space. I love in a recent post that you did, you talked about feeling guilty about feeling disappointed because the fall sports league has been canceled, postponed currently because of COVID feeling disappointed about that, frustrated, angry, all the emotions, and then feeling guilty that you're feeling that because your situation isn't bad compared to what other people are faced with, whether that's like losing a loved one or losing a job or being hungry. And this really hit home for me because I recognize right now how much privilege I have, how healthy our family is, you know, how lucky we are in so many different ways. But there's also been a lot of disappointment in 2020. There's been a lot of expectations that haven't been lived up to because of the current climate. And I think it's so easy for us to then judge the feelings that we're having to layer on guilt about those you so eloquently explained in your post, your process of dealing with this and some awareness you had around it. Would you mind sharing your thoughts on that? Of course. I struggled with this the same way you did, right? We're all in this pandemic, but there are issues in this world. There's pain being experienced and acknowledging our privilege and that the pain and the suffering of other people might be more severe than our suffering is important. Like that's important to acknowledge what these people are going through, what this community is going through, and acknowledging, supporting, and helping that cause is so important. But it does not mean we should minimize or invalidate any pain or suffering we're also experiencing in our own life. Mm. Because I did this before. I did this once before. When I was a student athlete and I was going through my depression, I convinced myself, oh, but you go to a great school. Oh, but your parents love you. Oh, but you're playing. And I said all these things that always made me feel like I was wrong for feeling depressed or guilty. And it got me to such a low place that I was having thoughts of how to pause my life, how to stop this because I had invalidated my emotions for such a long time. And so just knowing 
what can come as a result of constantly convincing yourself you don't matter, your feelings don't matter. I just felt that day like I wanted to share the reminder that your feelings do matter. Mm -hmm. No matter how small they might seem to compare to someone else's, they're important as well. And it's, and you should not minimize that or invalidate that. Once again, we do need to acknowledge and have perspective, right? Like there's worse things happening than sports being canceled, but that doesn't mean that the athletes can't feel sad about sports being canceled. I think when we invalidate our feelings, it prevents us from actually going to work on them. It prevents us from healing. It's like we put a stop gate on them and rather than allowing ourselves to feel them and the emotion to flow through, we prevent the healing process. And then that therefore shows up as anxiety or depression or, you know, all of these other states that we can get into. How do you manage allowing yourself to feel the feelings? So I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm frustrated that sports and volleyball have been canceled without allowing like this dark cloud to come over you without staying in that space and drowning in the emotion. Sometimes I think it's okay to allow the dark cloud to come and to be sad in that space because allowing space for our emotions allows us to have experiences that are important as humans, as people who are recovering. I actually interviewed a sports psychologist the other day. And he said, when people tell me they just want to be happy in life, I'm like, really? You don't want to feel sad when a loved one passes away. You don't want to feel pain when something bad happens. You don't want to feel hope when, you know, X, Y, Z happens. And it's appreciating, acknowledging the spectrum of emotions that we're going to have in our life. And so sometimes if I'm feeling sad, I'm going to allow myself to be sad. I think it's important to grieve whatever it is you're going through and fully allow that to surface. Then, like you mentioned, I do think there's a time where you acknowledge, okay, I've let this surface. I've grieved. I've allowed space for these emotions. Now it's time to put myself in an environment or do things that are going to help me get better. Because if I just mm-hmm. allow myself to sit in my bed for five days, not go outside, not see people. I'm going to allow that cloud to last longer than it probably should. So there is that awareness of knowing when you have paid your respect to these emotions, but it's time to put yourself in an environment where you can slowly start to become back to the person that you know yourself to be most often. Mm, I love it. What are some of your tools? You mentioned you can't just sit in your room for five days. So what are some of your tools? What would be some of the first steps that you would take to get yourself out of that place where you're, you know, you're like, I've paid homage to the sadness and now we've got to start moving forward. What would be Victoria's steps? Getting out of the house is a big one for me. I'm not a partier. Like, so I'm not saying go for a girl's night out, put on a hot outfit. No, like I think that is almost masking the fact that like you're, I don't know. That's not how I do it. Like I would love to go on a hike with some friends and maybe I can still talk about the pain, but now I'm at a hike and I'm outside and I can smell the air and see the trees. Or maybe I just want to go pick up dinner with my boyfriend and we're going to get in the car. We're going to drive for 15 minutes pick up the dinner, sit outside, and then come back home. It doesn't have to be a fancy dinner, but we're just leaving the house. Just forcing myself to do something like that usually allows me to explore and have new thoughts and new feelings. And so that's a big one. I think the other, the second one is everyone has people in their life, hopefully, that make them feel like the best version of themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about those people, 
there's only a handful, maybe less, but FaceTiming them if you can't see them right now, going on a walk with them, calling them, just those people that you know you can be completely yourself with, that cheer you up, that make you feel better. Getting in contact with those people always helps me as well. And being in a position where you can ask this person what you'd like from them, right? So I have that friend I'll call and I'll say, I really need to talk this through. I need your advice. I have the other friend who I'm like, I don't want to talk about, I've been depressed for three days. I just want you to make me laugh. How's your boyfriend? Did you go on the hinge date? Like, I want to hear about you because you're hilarious. So you have people that can offer different things. And, you know, the third little tool I'll throw in, which is kind of what I just said, but is asking and being particular about what you need around you to thrive. It's okay to tell someone, actually, do you mind? I don't really want to talk about your wedding plans because my boyfriend just dumped me. That's been my big problem. So like, (laughs) I don't want to talk about that. Can we talk about something else? Like Mm -hmm. if these people are your people, like you should be able to say, I would really love for you to help me in this way or, or, or need this of me because I know I'm going to offer that to them and I'm, and they can ask me whatever they need from me in a situation. I'm going to reciprocate that in our friendship. So also it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to ask for what you need and set yourself up for success, right? Like if you know you're in a toxic situation, is there a way to get out of that? Maybe there's not, but maybe you can go on that two hour walk so that you can escape it for two hours and then come back. But just being particular about the environment you're in as well is helpful to me as I try to come back to this person I want to be. I absolutely love it. What's coming up next for you? I mean, you are crushing it over on your IG. You just really recently started a podcast, I believe with Dear Media. I've actually had it for a long time, but okay. It's okay, but I just signed it to Dear Media. So it's a big step up in the podcasting world. I, I did it for a year totally by myself, earned my stripes, and yes. then they have picked me up and put me in their zoo. So I'm excited. <laughs> Amazing. Congratulations. We'll make sure that we link to that as well. You have your Instagram page, The Hidden Opponent, your personal IG page. We'll make sure that we link to all of these. What's up next for you? Have you gra- you've graduated? Yes, I'm a year out of school, fortunate to be able to do all of this and continue creating things that hopefully can inspire and help. The next big thing for me is next week, I'm going to be releasing some hoodies I'm really excited about. (gasps) I do this thing called hashtag real post on my Instagram, which is about no filters, showing up as you are, embracing your current situation. And so I'm excited about that to finally, after it's been like three and a half years now of kind of building my platforms and all that stuff. So to have something, I know it sounds silly like a hoodie, but it just makes me excited. And that's kind of the next big thing. It's amazing. I can't wait to get one. And I'll be sporting that over here at (laughs) Raw Beauty Talks. You know it. I'm number one fan over here. (laughs) So I always ask our guests to, actually, I shouldn't say always. You're the second person. This is a new thing on our podcast. (laughs) Moving forward, I'm always going to get our guests to uh, share a challenge with our audience, something that has really helped you in feeling your best from the inside out that you would encourage our audience to do. Your, our challenge, our Robbie challenge from Victoria Garrick's is... I challenge you, anyone listening, to not look in the full body mirror for a week. 
I can't tell you what a game changer it is to not spend those 10 minutes looking up and down saying, I hate this about myself. This looks stupid here. That looks stupid there. I'm a big fan of deprioritizing our appearance. Like I'm not going to let how I look being attractive, not attractive, pretty, not pretty, be the most important thing about me or be the thing I value the most about myself. And in doing that, one of the things I did was I stopped looking in the full body mirror. If you do affirmations and that helps you, of course, don't let me get in the way of your affirmations. But if you're someone that's just like, you know, you don't do that and you look in the mirror a lot, you'll start to notice how often you go walk to the mirror to be negative. If you actively try to not look in the mirror for a week. And yeah, that's my recommendation. And if anyone's like, well, what if I need to see if my outfit's cute? Just look down, just look down, make sure the colors are cute. And you're good to go. Yeah, you don't, nobody's even going out anymore. We just, all you have to do is make sure that your top's cute for your Zoom calls. It's so interesting that you say that because without even intending to do this, we moved to Whistler a year and a half ago and I never got a full length mirror from our place. And it was, wasn't a place that had like, you know, sliding doors with mirrors built in. And I didn't really think about it until some girlfriends came to stay with me and we were all going out and they were like, where's your mirror? And I was like, interesting. I don't have a mirror here. And they were like, what? And I was like, they're like, how do you know what you're wearing? I'm like, I look down. And, and it was like, as you said, it's not a huge priority so much so now that I didn't have a full length mirror for a year and a half. And I do think it's a game changer. I do. And you don't I need it. That. that was so natural. Isn't it cool when you have a moment like that, where you realize that you have completely let go of something and it wasn't even like an aware decision you made, but it was just, that's no longer a priority in your life. So that is so awesome, Erin. I love that. I have one, but I just, I don't really look into it. I mean, my mom, like the scale. Yeah. Get away. Oh, I haven't stepped. I was thinking about that right before this podcast randomly, but I don't, I have, I don't know what I weigh. I haven't known for three years. So yeah. (laughs) And it just doesn't really matter. There's so many things that are telling us that we need to know. And so many women who are stepping on that scale every single day, letting that number define whether they're happy or sad or in a good place or bad, like get rid of it. Just throw it right off the balcony, throw it right out the door. Victoria, thank you so much for the incredible work you are doing each and every day. I know how much time and patience and thought goes into creating the incredible content that you create and it is changing lives. It is changing the world. I wish when I was 16 and going through all my stuff that there was somebody like you out there doing the work that you're doing now. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It was so great to be here. I loved having this conversation with you and I'm just really grateful. So thanks. Amazing. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to like it, copy the link and share it with somebody that you care about. Share it with somebody who might need to hear Victoria's message and I will see you next week. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. 
Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform. 